He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. It's the quote on the back of your handout by C.S. Lewis. And it's a profound statement that he who has God and everything else has no more than the one who has God only. That insight, I believe, gets at the heart of the message of the entire book of Philippians, but particularly as we're concluding it now, in the very last words that Paul has for the believers in Philippi, he's addressing the issue of contentment in God found by all those who place their confidence in God. So if you haven't already, I invite you to take a Bible to open it to Philippians chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles, it's provided for you in the pew. It's on page 982. And we're going to pick it up at verse 10 and read until it ends in verse 23. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Uh, For all of you who've been with us regularly throughout this book, I hope you've seen that the brevity of this book is in no way an indication of just how deep and impactful this book can be. It's a very, very short letter, but there is so much for us to dwell on in these verses. And that is just as true of the ending as it was the beginning and the middle. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches, in glory, in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's where our reading concludes. We're just going to highlight... Four words as a way of summarizing Paul's message here. But with the quote in the handout, I'll have some other quotes that are a little more dense and lengthy. And so if you want, you might try to write those down. But therefore, the overall outline for these verses is going to be incredibly brief. Just four words that is hopefully then easy for all of us to remember. And the first word is there in verse 10, concern. You'll notice that he says he's rejoicing in the Lord greatly. This is Paul. He's writing from prison. And he is rejoicing in the Lord greatly because the Philippians had revived their 
concern. They were concerned about him. Why? Because he was in prison, and in prison had very little access to resources. And so he goes on to describe that not only did they provide for him in this situation, but they provided for him in the past. And it's a helpful correction, just in case any of us, when we had heard Paul's words in verse 6, when he said, do not be anxious about anything, we thought, Paul's just basically telling us not to have feelings. He's telling us that it's wrong to have emotional responses to things that people are struggling with. And that's clearly not what Paul is saying in verse six when he says, don't be anxious about anything, but he's drawing a distinction between being anxious and being concerned. Anxiousness will lead to paralysis. Concern will lead to action. Anxiousness will lead us to a paralysis. We're just so overwhelmed at what could go wrong or what is going wrong that we're numb, we're stuck, and we don't do anything. And he's saying that's not helpful. To have an emotional response of concern over a situation that leads you to prayer and then leads you to action is absolutely right. But you can't stop feeling until you're dead. You're always going to feel. You're going to respond to things that you see. And so he's not saying just be completely unmoved and have no emotions that that's somehow the way God wants us to live the Christian life. No, because what he's thankful for here is that these people were concerned to the point of action. And he says, he realizes that they had this concern even when they didn't have the opportunity to act upon it. We don't know what that means, but they're like cities away. So maybe they had the resources, but there was nobody who was willing to travel to Rome to give it to them. So they had all this stuff that they wanted to give, but they didn't have the opportunity because they didn't have someone until Epaphroditus who could do it. Or it could be, that they said, um, hey, we've heard Paul's in prison now in Rome and we're taking up a collection and it just it took a little while before that collection was gathered together. People had to think about what it was that they could give and contribute in generosity so that Paul could get it. But either way, he knows as he now has Epaphroditus with him and he's sending this letter back to the Philippians through Epaphroditus that they clearly have this concern for him. And this isn't the first time they've done this. When he was in Thessalonica, they did it for him there. When you read First and Second Thessalonians, you hear Paul saying there was such an issue with laziness in Thessalonica that Paul didn't want to take any money from them. And so he started back up his tent-making job so that he didn't have to collect from them. But he wasn't getting enough, apparently, from his tent-making job. So the Philippian church, when they heard about it, they sent him resources there so that he could supplement his income through their generosity. But it's concern that leads to prayer, concern that leads to action. And they have this concern, and Paul is incredibly thankful to the Lord for their concern. And so in that sense, Paul recognizes um, that one, thankfulness can go around. Um, He's thankful for them, but it's interesting that he first directs his thanksgiving to God. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you revived your concern for me. In other words, I thank God that he brought into your mind my needs and that you met them. And so I thank God and I thank you because God often meets our needs through other people and through their generosity. And so thankfulness, gratitude is something that's easy to share among people. You can be thankful to multiple people at one and the same time for one and the same thing. 
And Paul exhibits that. He doesn't have to pick between the two. He's rejoicing in the Lord. He's thankful for that. And he's thankful for them because of how they've responded. But there's a bit of a tension because he wants to express his thankfulness on the one hand for their concern, but he also wants them to know that he's content in whatever situation he finds himself. So the second word is contentment. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, verse 12, if we took the time to think about it, is pretty graphic. But it, it sounds nice and sweet enough that we can kind of just go over and not really think about what he's saying. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. We get a little bit more substance to what he means by that if we turn backwards to the book of 2 Corinthians. And so I'll invite you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is on page 970. And this, this tells us a little bit more what Paul means when he says, I know what it's like to face abundance or need, hunger or plenty. So on page 970, we'll start in verse 23 at the top. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He's being a bit uh, rhetorical here. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. So here's what Paul experienced in his service for Christ. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So five times he was lashed 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So that's a little bit more graphic than, I know what it's like to face hunger or plenty, abundance or need. That's specifically what he was experiencing. If you're still in Second Corinthians and you just turn back a little bit, You'll hear him describe this again earlier in chapter 6 on page 966, starting in verse 4. So chapter 6 and verse 4, 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet 
making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. There again, it's just a much more detailed description of what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 4. He's had the whole spectrum of human experience in his service for Christ. It's not, I went through all these bad things before I was a Christian, and now that I'm a Christian, I've experienced all of these good things. No, this whole spectrum that Paul is describing are experiences that he's had within his Christian life. He knows all of these ranges of emotion so that when he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, that's what he's talking about. He has learned in Christ a way to be content in every circumstance, in imprisonment or freedom, in beatings or praise, in facing plenty or hunger. Such that we would study, you've, how have you learned how to be content in all of that? And he gives us the answer in verse 13. This is what he means by the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do this on my own. I don't, <clears throat> this contentment doesn't come from me. I have learned how to be content, but my contentment in all things can only come when my confidence is in Christ. My contentment in all things can only happen when my confidence is in Christ and the strength that Christ supplies. <clears throat> but he says he has, he's learned it, and so <clears throat> he's thankful for the gift, and, and he wants them to know that he's thankful, but he also wants them to know that Basically, had they not sent the gift, he would still be worshiping God. He would still be rejoicing in the Lord. His rejoicing in the Lord is not dependent on whether or not they sent the gift. So he's thankful for it. He's excited by it. But God's going to get the praise in Paul's life no matter what because he is content in Christ with whatever life brings his way. These two things go together concern for others and contentment in our own circumstances. When we're content with whatever situation we're in, it's possible for us then to manifest real and genuine concern for other people. When what we're primarily concerned about is our situation and therefore the focus of all of our efforts and thoughts are on our situation and how to change our situation, what we end up becoming content in is the things that other people are going through. When we're content with our situation and our circumstance, we can express concern for other people. And that's what the Philippians did. Many of them had to sacrifice something in order to give to Paul. They had to come up with financial resources or maybe some clothing that some people made in the church and they said, I bet Paul could use this. It's probably cold sleeping on a stone floor in prison. Whatever it was that they gathered together to give to him, it required a sacrifice. So here again is this balance. How can we be content in all situations and yet our contentment leads us to be concerned about the situations of other people? 
right? So that <clears throat> if I can get to a place where I can say, I'm content if I'm hungry at times, I'm still not supposed to be content when someone else is hungry. I'm supposed to be concerned when they're hungry. And I'm supposed to try to do as much as I can something about alleviating their hunger. And I can do that better. I can show concern more when I'm content in my own situation. And that's Paul, throughout this letter, content, had been expressing love to them and his concern for them. His concern that if Epaphroditus didn't make it with this letter and he was lost, that that they would be overwhelmed with grief. Paul, what are you doing having concern for us? Because I'm content with my situation. And so my concerns are not primarily about myself. They are, in fact, for you. It's just an amazing and profound insight that Paul would say he could do this. Now, one of the other shocking things about this is that he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty. Right? You should read that phrase and be like, what are you kidding me? What's the secret? Right? When you have plenty, you just enjoy it. What do you, you don't have to learn anything about facing plenty. See, if we were to write it, we, if we said we learned contentment, I learned contentment in hunger. I learned contentment in need. But that isn't where Paul left it. He said, I even learned how to be content in abundance. I even learned how to be content when there was an excess supply. Well, so what would he mean by learning how to be content even in those times? Well, if Paul happened to be at a feast and there was more than enough food at the table, contentment would have meant that he just didn't eat it simply because it was there. Yes, there's more than enough food here, but if I'm content with what I have, I won't abuse this and all of a sudden take more than what I need just because I can. When I have less than what I need, I've learned how to be content. And when someone comes to me and offers me more than what I need, I know how to be content and I don't take more than what I need. Okay, Paul, what's the secret to that? (laughs) Because that is a secret we need to know. Because we can so quickly assume if a calamity comes in our life and a trial comes and we lose something to all of a sudden become self-reflective and pray and say, you know, what have I been doing? What's going, what's going wrong in my life? But most of us, if we walked out of here and somebody said, hey, you didn't know it, but some uncle you never heard of just in, left you his inheritance, very few of us would, wait a minute, I need to take a moment of self-reflection. God, what did I do wrong? God, why am I going through this? What do you mean, why are you going through this? Well, why would someone give you that much money? I'm not going to ask that question. I know what to do with the money. I've had a whole list of things I want to do with the money. But if you read throughout the Bible, the way in which oftentimes people's relationship to God is drawn away when they take more than they need, you realize that it's not necessarily good news when you have more than what you need. You pray less. You care about other people less. It's easy with a certain amount of money to isolate yourself from the people you don't like. And when you isolate yourself from them, you no longer see them. And when you no longer see them, you no longer can express concern for them. Because they're not even on your radar screen anymore. And Paul is saying, I've learned the secret of both of those things. I know when I'm hungry, how to face that. And I know when I have excess not to allow all of that excess that I'm enjoying to then become a source of neglecting 
other people. I'm not taking a phone call, I'm pulling up a quote. There was just <clears throat> much faster to take a picture of it than to bring up like three books with me. <clears throat> this is a poem, and the irony of this is the poem I'm about to quote is a guy who's never used a computer in his life. He's still alive, he's not like 200 years ago. Uh, he's a farmer in Kentucky, and he wrote this poem in 1980. And this is a commentary on American government and people's spending habits. We who prayed and wept for liberty from kings and the yoke of liberty accept the tyranny of things we do not need. In plentitude too free, we have become adept beneath the yoke of greed. Those who will not learn in plenty to keep their place must learn it by their need. When they have had their way and the field spurn their seed, we have failed thy grace. Lord, I flinch and pray, send thy necessity. We who prayed for liberty from kings have embraced the tyranny of things we do not need. This is a hymn writer. I never remember this hymn growing up. It's called, My God, I Thank Thee. <clears throat> but in the last verse of this hymn, the writer says, I thank thee, God, more that all our joy is touched with pain, that shadows fall on brightest hours, that thorns remain, so that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. It's a profound statement, a statement that Paul could make. I thank you, Lord, that all our joy is touched with pain so that earth's bliss may be our guide and not our chain. Paul's learned the secret. <clears throat> he has concerns for other people. It's not wrong to have things, and Paul knows that. He knows what it's like to have plenty. It's absolutely wrong to not be thankful for the things that we have. And when our story is told, we will either be those who are content with what we have and concern for others or we'll be concerned for ourselves and content with the suffering of others. They go together. They always have and they always will. And Paul's longing that this church in Philippi would experience the joy he has that's unshakable that because of who God is in his life they can be motivated by concern for others and contentment in themselves. And then the third word, credit, verse 17. We're back to chapter 4, verse 17 of Philippians. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So just like in the receiving of it, Paul is thankful to God for their concern. In their giving of it, Paul is saying, you're not just giving to me, you're giving to God. This isn't just something I'm thankful for, this is something that actually is being seen and witnessed by God, and he accounts it to your credit that you're being generous. So that our concern for other people doesn't just come from God, but when we respond in obedience to him, he says, you're storing up credit. God sees what you're doing. He sees your concern for other people. He sees how you're reaching out for them. He is paying attention to that. And so it's not just that I now have a warm jacket to put on and I have food to eat, but you have something accounted to your credit 
by the God who sees all things. And he who sees all things will reward those in some way, and we don't know specifically how, but all throughout the New Testament, it makes clear that there is a sense of a difference in rewards, even for Christians, as they enter into their eternal home. And so what he's saying to them, though we don't know what exactly that looks like, this is good for you to do this for me. This is to your advantage, to your credit, that you would be concerned for me and that you would act in this way. He's not at all implying that there's a way of earning credit as it relates to salvation. Paul's already made that clear through everything else he's written in the book of Philippians, but he is encouraging them to continue to do this kind of a thing because there is a way in which it is noticed and rewarded by the very God who puts that impulse and that love and his spirit within us. It's good for you to give to other people. And when that settles in on us as well, and we actually come to experience that, the joy that comes in generosity, the joy that comes in helping other people, we realize it can become a selfish thing to help other people because it really is the funnest thing in the world to come alongside someone who has a genuine need and to be a part of the answer of their prayers to God to alleviate those needs. And, and when you've done that and when you've tasted that, you realize, I don't need to be congratulated. That was the funnest thing I've done in a long time. Can we go do that again? I, that was, I got something out of that experience, something of the heart of God, something of his compassion and his character. And then all of this, I think, comes down to the last word, which is completion, which you don't find the word completion in chapter four, but you find it in chapter one. In chapter one in verse six, this is what Paul said of this church. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul could look at this church, see the concern they had for other people, for him, which had to flow in some measure out of their own contentment with their circumstances, and he sees what's being credited to their account, and it's because of all those things that he can write this letter to them and say, I am confident that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. Because I can see in you the ongoing work of your relationship with God. That's one of the things that makes this letter to the Philippians very different than some of the other New Testament letters. Corinthians does not have this tone. Paul is concerned about the eternal state of some of the people in Corinth or in other churches in the New Testament. Because they are not bearing the ongoing fruit that you would expect and desire to see from someone who is fully committed to Christ and who's placed all of their confidence in Christ. But here as he's writing the Philippians and he's a recipient again of their generosity, he didn't write them a letter and say, this is what I need. This is just them being spontaneous, being generous. And this isn't just a one-time thing and like, well, that's really out of character. I haven't heard from that church in like forever and now they sent me something. He says, no, 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 and you've done this before. And when you did it there, you did it multiple times. It's probably closer access to Thessalonica than it was to Rome. But this was a group of people that was excited to express their generosity when they had the opportunity. And Paul looks at that and he looks at them and he sees the ongoing fruit they're bearing and he says, I'm confident that the work that's begun in you, he's gonna bring it all the way to completion. 
because I can just see it. I can see it borne out in your life. And so what he does say to them in verse, uh, in chapter four, verses 19 and 20, to that same end, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is just an example, just like verse 13. You can take verse 19, and if you don't know what the context of Philippians is, you just would come to understand it in all the wrong ways. And so some people want to take this verse, my God will supply every need of yours according to his will. So if you just believe enough, and if you just pray enough, and if you just try enough, you'll never go through suffering, you'll never go through pain, you'll never go through loss. Well, wait a minute. Where's that verse from that you're quoting to me? Philippians. Who wrote it? Paul. Where was he writing it from? Prison. So you think Paul, when he wrote this, thought that they would never experience need? That if they just had faith enough, if they just believed enough, they would never go through trial? Have you read 2 Corinthians? This promise is a promise that whatever we go through, he will supply us with what we need. Just like the promise in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says, what's your name? And he says, I am who I am, which was a way of saying, I will be whatever you need me to be in the moment you need me to be it. There's never a thing you're going to go through where I'm not going to be going through it with you. And so I will be there. I will supply your needs. But you're not going to, we're not going to avoid everything. We're not going to avoid all the pain. We're not going to avoid all the loss. No. You're going to experience it as a human being like any other human being, but what you have that someone doesn't have who's not in Christ is the confidence that Paul here can express and that he longs for the Philippians when they hear this and they look around at their needs and all their issues that they would say, we are confident. It's not just Paul's confidence for them, it's their own confidence that they would eventually develop that God will always be there to supply every need of theirs. And so he is worthy of all praise, all glory forever and ever. Amen. And so our challenge as a church in the 21st century, reading about this church in the first century, is to say, is Christ working in such a way in our lives that he is our complete confidence? And so we are at one and the same time genuinely concerned about the needs of people outside of our church. We're genuinely content with whatever situation we find ourselves. And we know that some way in the economy of God, everything we do for others is in fact God's prescription of what is best for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of this amazingly short and yet incredibly powerful letter of Paul uh, to this church that even in his own mind's eye as he was sitting in a prison cell writing it that he would never know how relevant it could be 20 centuries later how convicting and penetrating it could be to us sitting in a completely different context speaking a totally different language faced with very different issues And so we just thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the truth that it presents to us. And we long that if our story is written and told by someone else, that all that is brought out 
as the positives, as the fruit that's being born by this church would be said of us. Help us to be concerned for others. Those that don't come to Lakeside, those that don't choose to participate in our small groups or show up at our events, that we would be genuinely concerned for the needs that exist outside of this room. And that as brothers and sisters, we would be concerned for the needs that exist outside of us but are in this room. And that you would give us all the amazing ability to be content through you in all things. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.